I think the differences between B2B marketing and B2C marketing are really kind of breaking down in a way that's exciting. I also think that the expectations that B2B buyers have, especially on the enterprise side, are kind of converging with the expectations that B2C buyers have. So. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. I had a great conversation today with my guest Ian Greenlee. He's the director of marketing for data.world and he's the author of The Social Media Side Door, one of the early books about gaining greater influence and access through social media. He's been a keynote speaker at many events and has media coverage in major business publications, including Digiday and HubSpot's blog. He's worked at Bizarre Voice and Economist Group, among many other cool companies. And you can find him right now at iangreenly.com. You can also find his current employer, data.world, at data.world. Again, I really enjoyed speaking with him today. Thanks to Ian for uh, allowing me to have this conversation with him. And I hope you all enjoy. Ian Greenlee, you've had a very impressive career, and I've, I've seen your leadership experience firsthand uh, working with you at Data.World. You're, you're an excellent marketer, and I do want to talk about Data.World, but first I want to talk a little bit about you and your history. You were one of the early you know, authors about social media. You, in 2013, wrote The Social Media Side Door. First of all, I'd like you to kind of explain what the point is that you were making, like what's the thesis in that book, uh, and then second, why did you write that book? Sure. Yeah. I'll actually start with the second question. It'll make more sense. So um, I graduated from UT here in Austin um, in December 2007, which is pretty much the worst time you could graduate from college since the Great Depression. It was the very beginning of the recession. Um, I didn't know at that point that I wanted to go into marketing. In fact, I was like a political science major. It's called government at UT. I don't remember the distinction, but um, I also knew I didn't want to be a lawyer or go into politics. So my options were pretty limited as far as my educational background. Um, don't have any, you know, manual skills really <laughs> can't, can't, uh, do any woodworking or anything like that. So I decided to start looking kind of in the marketing space, but, um, wasn't fully convinced that marketing was for me yet. So the only jobs I could get, um, and I had to really fight to the nail to get them were really boiler room sales jobs where I was, um, you know, just a kind of low level rep making $80 a day. And it just wasn't for me. First of all, um, I'm an introvert. I'm uh, just not a great salesperson in general. And I really didn't like that boiler room environment. But um, as I kind of transitioned from company to company, I started to pick up more things that in retrospect were considered marketing. So I worked for a little real estate technology company where I just I figured out that as a salesperson, I could start um, basically giving marketing advice to realtors that were just starting to figure out social media. And I started blogging and realized, hey, this is marketing and I like it. And that went pretty well um, until I actually uh, took out a reverse help wanted Facebook ad to find uh, a true marketing job in Austin. And what that means is I took out a Facebook ad. It had my face on it. It said, uh, hey, I'm Ian. I'm looking for a job in new media, which is what we called it at the time. Can you help? It linked to a special page on my website that had just kind of like a, a quick hits version of my resume. And you know, it was something like five reasons why you should hire me. And um, the targeting at the time was a little different than it is today on Facebook, but I, I pointed it at anyone that had like CMO or VP of marketing in their bios. And uh, I also uh, pointed it at people that worked for a few companies that I wanted to work for. And one of those was called Bizarre Voice. Bizarre Voice was 
the leader in the uh, the customer review space. So if they had the biggest data set, for example, of um, of products mapped to how customers feel about them. That was really appealing to me. Um, so sure enough, the CMO saw my ad, uh, people had forwarded it to him. And uh, even though actually I had been screened out for that job because my resume was admittedly very thin, I didn't have much marketing experience at all. Um, they saw the creativity and the initiative and they brought me in for an interview and then you know, three more interviews and a you know, the biggest presentation of my life at that point um, was uh, I, I was the social media manager, which was kind of a novel position in 2010. Um, a few companies had them, but in Austin, it was pretty rare. And I realized later that, you know, what I had kind of exploited was what I now call a social media side door. It's this idea that the gatekeepers that once kind of prevented us as normal people from accessing power were no longer there in many ways. And that social media as an emerging technology and uh, emerging set of channels uh, gave people like me direct access to get on the radar of powerful people that could help my career, um, you know, help promote my book, whatever it was that I needed as a, as a regular person, I could find a way to to get that through social media. Um, an example I like to use is, you know, imagine that you are trying to get the attention of um, a Fortune 500 CEO. You're trying to get a job at that company, for example. And imagine the normal way, you know, applying online through, uh, through a typical kind of like resume system, um, going through the recruiters, probably several levels below that CEO. And uh, the alternative, of course, would be to um, you know, do what I did, something like I did, put a page on your site that explains why you're great for that position and at message the CEO on Twitter. Uh, a lot of them you'll find actually are very accessible, way more accessible than if you tried to go through their executive assistants or tried to access them in a different means. So the book explores a whole lot more than just job seeking, but that was the genesis, the spark uh, of the idea that I still really believe in to this day. I think that the channels and the, the different tactics, um, some of them don't work anymore that are in the book. Some of the, the channels have uh, really kind of throttled your access um, and prioritized paid uh, customers of theirs that are actually paying for ads to get reach. So my advice nowadays is to find those emerging channels, just like I did back then with Facebook, and figure out who you want to meet and who you need access from, and figure out how to reach them through those channels. Because usually when channels start, they don't have a lot of gatekeepers or barriers to entry at the beginning. And uh, you know, new social networks are launching every year. So rather than focusing on Facebook or something that is at this point, you know, more than a decade old, um, I would suggest people look for new opportunities using those same principles. I think it's so interesting because the position you were applying for just inherently by creating an advertisement and creating like an inbound job seeking funnel almost, you, you demonstrated your competence and creativity there. So I think that's super interesting. Um, 
So thanks for. Uh... I should state for the record, though, that the, the idea was actually a guy named Grant Turk. He was a job seeker in L.A. He was looking for a job in PR. Just that the time and the place and the space he was going into was a lot more competitive. So it actually didn't work out for him. But a blog that I read found his story, maybe saw his ad and profiled him. So I actually gave him a call and asked permission to completely copy his idea. So I did not come up with this idea. I just helped popularize it. So uh, what marketing books, podcasts, gurus have influenced you in your career and, and helped you, you know, achieve the success that you have? I try not to read marketing books or pay attention to many of the gurus, not because I don't think they're smart, but where I find a lot of my inspiration and ideas come from um, things that are kind of on paper unrelated to to marketing um, or to the space that I'm currently in, which is B2B enterprise SaaS, right? When I'm looking for creative ideas um, to apply to B2B enterprise SaaS, I'll usually look at what people are doing in the consumer space and figure out which of those ideas I can take and kind of translate to my world. Um, if you do that, you'll find that not everything works, but you'll probably be among the first in your space to take an idea from the consumer world and try it with enterprise buyers. And so people will not have seen it before and it'll be more novel. And I think differentiation is way more important than ever before um, because there are so many signals out there. Uh, I mean, really, since I wrote that book, it's actually it's easier, it's just as easy to get on someone's radar, but you're competing against way more signals and and way more people are using social ads to reach them as well. So being distinct is more important. And one way to do that is to adapt a playbook so that it's not like your competition. And by competition, I really mean anyone consume, uh, trying to consume a person's attention. So um, of course I do, do love authors like Seth Godin, big fan of marketing profs, that whole operation with Anne Hanley. Um, there are a lot of authors I've, I've read, but for the most part, I, I look for inspiration outside of those books, which is probably shooting myself in the book, the, in the foot, because I myself wrote a business book. Um, but, you know, that's the truth. If you have one handy, I'd love an example of a time you were able to find a B2C trend and implement it in either Data.World's B2B SaaS enterprise environment or any of the other companies that you've worked with. Yeah, definitely. Um, starting with, with Bizarre Voice, something I was very interested in was data journalism. Not a lot of brands were trying their hands at like taking their data and making it into um, something that seemed like journalism, you know, looking for insights, pitching it out, things like that. Um, so we decided, hey, like I mentioned that data asset that we had before, which was the biggest database of individual product SKUs tied to exactly how people all over the world felt like that. We tried our hand at actually putting a quarterly publication together. It was called the Conversation Index. Uh, it's morphed into something else today. But the basis of that was let's let's do the kind of journalism that people are responding to. This was kind of in the era of infographics too. So that was a big boost to us. So we actually printed these these very shiny, beautiful little booklet booklets and we would send them out like almost magazine subscriptions to 
CMOs and other people that we were trying to reach. Um, it became a big PR asset, a big sales asset. Um, and I'm, I'm really proud of my work, um, at, you know, creating the, the flagship for Bizarre Voice for their, for their content strategy. And more recently, actually just a few weeks ago, we did our first data.world summit. I had been noticing uh, a trend with everything from beer cans to HBO Max's branding um, of these kind of uh, pastel gradients. And although I don't think I can really quantify the effect of this, I, I, I hadn't seen much of that um, style in the enterprise world. So we decided to kind of mi create a micro brand that made uh, the summit distinct, but related to our overall branding. So it used uh, complementary colors from our palette, but in kind of a gradient format. And I think that the event looked just a lot more exciting for that reason. I thought that was really cool. I remember seeing that and, and uh, wishing I had designed it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so uh, I think I can see from that infographic point, uh, a, a nice transition here into your, your work at data.world. So how did you end up working for data.world and what is it and who is it for? And put me in my place if you pronounce it data instead of data. You can pronounce it data. I think uh, typically we, we say data.world, but you get points for saying the dot because not a lot of people uh, <laughs> do that. Um, so it, it's data.world. And um, I came across it actually um, because I was in New York for two years. Um, I was moving back to Austin and I actually didn't have a job lined up. I was just kind of taking yet another risk in my career. Uh, I emailed a few people, including Brett Hurt, who was the CEO and co-founder of Bizarre Voice um, and is now the CEO and co-founder of Data.World and said, hey, you know, um, are there any companies in your portfolio or on your radar that you think could use someone like me? And he said, actually, maybe mine. I have a stealth startup that, you know, it's stealth, so we haven't told a lot of people about, and that's why you don't know about it, but let's talk. So, um they brought me in and I kind of pitched them on what I could do for them. And uh, that was in 2016 and, and I've been there ever since. Um, data world itself, it's a cloud native enterprise data catalog. And uh, it's designed because we saw this problem that it was way too hard for typical people at a company to get fast, clear, accurate answers to business questions that they had. And the reason was the data was hard to find. It was hard to use because you couldn't really understand um, what to do with it. And you generally had to navigate some kind of labyrinth to even find it. So most people that could have used that data to make better decisions didn't. It was just too much of a schlep. So we think that you know at most big companies, only a fraction of the people that should be using data productively are using data. And it's because data is so fragmented across different data silos, across different kind of fiefdoms within a company. And it's only something that what we call the data elites at an organization, which is such a tiny fraction, uh, are using today. But the thing is, there's really no excuse for that. Um, we wanted to create a product that helps people find, understand, and use data easier. To do that, we took a lot more inspiration from Facebook and Google and beautiful uh, interfaces and experiences that are more on the consumer end of things, going back to, to what we were talking about before, 
than we did from like very kind of enterprisey, hyper technical products because those are generally built by really technical people for exclusively really technical people, and that's fine. But if you really want to create change within your organization and create a data-driven culture, then you need to expand the scope of who is included in that. So we pride our, ourselves on making data catalog that's truly inclusive. Just because I want to make sure that people understand the core principle that we're discussing here, can can you give an example of uh, you know using data to make a decision in a business and some some of the problems that might be used if you if you didn't if you tried to do it on your own rather than using a sophisticated tool like the one that you offer? Sure. Say I am an analyst and I've been asked to uh, project you know how many units will sell next quarter at really any old company and um, think about all the contingencies there, the word uh, sale, the word unit, these all have different definitions within a big organization. People use them differently. They mean different things. Um, so using data.world really gets everyone on the same page um, as far as what the question being asked is. And it's an environment to collaborate with the people asking it and answering the question. So. Um, it's 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 a way to answer really any business question uh, for which data can be valuable um, in kind of a single place. And one of the, the distinctions between us and other data catalogs is I would say that most data catalogs are like the Dewey Decimal System, like a card catalog. They kind of reference the data, right? And they, they point you to it, but it's not easy to actually access the data itself and work with the data within that catalog. So we're more like the library where you can find the data, but you can also use the data in context. We are also built on um, a lot of kind of open technologies. So it's easier to integrate with the tools that you love, like Tableau, for example. We don't think that we can do, do the best version of everything. So we're not trying to create a visualization tool that's going to rival Tableau. That's just not realistic. We love Tableau. We want data people who really kind of came up with a very, um, uh, they're very loyal to the tools that they they started using when they began or what their company uses. We want them to be able to do their best work. We don't expect them to use data.world for everything. And that's why we are an open platform that integrates with a lot of the top tools that, that people love to use. That's, that's awesome, thank you. Um... One of the things you mentioned a minute ago was the the summit event that you just had. I think you said it was called the Data Dot World Summit. Is that did I get that name right? Yeah, very creative name. Uh, I think it's a I think it's a great idea. Uh, I have a lot of questions for you about about that kind of a of a strategy. So, um, first of all, is this the first time that you've been involved in an event marketing? Have you done it previously? And then, how do you measure the success of an event like that? That's a great question. Um, I've been involved in in quite a few. Uh, virtual events, in-person events, going back to Bizarre Voice days where, you know, we would have Stephen Fry speak at our London summit. So kind of uh, we were playing at that level at the time. I wanted to take a lot of those ideas back to what we could do for kind of a flagship virtual event. And that's why we wanted distinct branding. Um, this one, you know, we've gotten pretty good at generating good leads and stuff like that through webinars and other smaller virtual events. So our primary focus on this one was expanding our brand footprint, generating awareness and sharing our point of view with the world. That's why we had uh, you know, 20 different speakers across eight sessions. 
diversity of viewpoints, diversity of um, demographics, really every way you slice it. Um, so this was a kind of a showcase for some of the smartest people we know to share the latest and greatest insights about working with data and how to build data-driven cultures. Uh, and then, you know, after the event's all said and done, is there a specific metric that you're looking at and saying like, this was a win, this was a loss? Um, is it attendees? Is it signups for demos afterwards? Like, it, it seems like kind of a softer touch approach rather than like a webinar funnel where, you know, the classic thing is like at the end, you try and get them to sign up for a demo. It, it doesn't seem like that's the same kind of, an, of, a, of a thing. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I think so. It, it wasn't very salesy at all. There's it was not a high pressure environment. Um, in that regard, we didn't talk a whole lot about our product. When we did, we tried to make it valuable to people that don't even know about our product yet. Um, and, and of course, it generated quite a few great leads for us. But again, our primary goal was um, how many people can we introduce into our community? So we had a Slack community, kind of a, a sidecar conversation going, looking at the growth of that. Um, just looking at how many new contacts signed up to, to access the event uh, that we hadn't spoken to before. So we're really trying to triangulate that overall footprint of our brand. There's not one KPI that I would point to, to, to say whether this was successful or not. I mean, I can tell you that it was very successful, um, but not by just one standard. One of the things you just mentioned it now, and it's also, you know, a big, uh, integral portion of your marketing is the community that you just mentioned. Um, how, how does that play into your into your business? And can you maybe speak to a little bit about what that community is, how people can get involved in it? Um, just kind of tell me about that. Yeah. So um, apart from our enterprise data catalog, which is, of course, a paid product, there's a massive free community that actually preceded it. Um, and we launched that in 2016. In the summer of 2016, and it grew like wildfire. And essentially, it's a way to find uh, hundreds of thousands of data sets and work together to solve problems, usually not business problems, because in that case, they would be talking to us on the enterprise side. But it's a suite of free tools aimed at data discovery and data acquisition and uh, collaboration. So um, it's in the hundreds of thousands of members. There's hundreds of thousands of data sets on there. It's a very vibrant community. Um, but we realized kind of early on that um, as a business, it made more sense for us to focus on um, serving other businesses and um, also kind of a different profile of clientele. So the individual data scientists, they get a lot out of using our product, but they're generally not the person signing the checks, so to speak. Um, so we needed something that appealed to different areas of the organization, business decision makers, um, but again, it's you know it's still really thriving, and um, we since it has such scale, we learn a lot by introducing new features into that side of the platform, seeing how people work with it, getting feedback, and then um, selectively taking those features and and putting them into the the paid side of the product. Does one so it's almost like a huge beta program. Does one funnel into the other? Like if you have the, you know, a bunch of people in the community, does, as those people start using data, data more, um, do they start becoming like your business, your enterprise clients as well? Or do you think that they're kind of just totally separate audiences? They're not totally separate audiences at all. I mean, um, a lot of the people in that community have day jobs um, at companies we would love to talk to or are already working with. I see. So what, 
what other kinds of companies would you recommend this kind of an approach to like where you have a community that you build up and then you know whatever the use case is for them whether it's more of like a beta test thing like you're doing like you mentioned originally or one feeds into your paid product uh or you know what kinds of companies would you recommend event marketing because these are two you know these are two approaches that we hear a lot about and we see like these major thought leaders doing them and great companies like data.world but smaller companies like like my agency for example it it's it's a crazy thing to think about doing if you've never thought about it before um where would you recommend getting started with something like that if at all yeah a related concept that i've been learning a lot about is called product-led growth and that's really the idea that those those first few stages when someone interacts with your brand and signs up are really critical you want to get them to value as soon as possible so any company that cares about that should consider either a free trial um or you know a, a proof of concept or, or something like that where you can give away a lot of the value for free um, being confident in that value and knowing that a certain percentage of it will come back to you as paid users and you can't just you know set it and forget it there's like a whole process involved for sure um it's a it's an art and a science and it's it's this emerging kind of product in marketing and cs philosophy altogether there's a really good book um that i recommend called product led growth the same name and um i got a lot out of it and i, I don't think i know enough about it to to recommend specifically which kind of companies would um succeed there but there's certainly uh a lot of guidance in that book and there's a lot of content online that you can find um, as far as event marketing it really depends i think that if you have a novel point of view you might start with actually submitting proposals to existing events and trying to get your viewpoint out that way and um, in a kind of circuitous way you, you get leads and, and accumulate thought leadership that way um, but it's getting cheaper and uh, easier to to stage your own, you know, micro events um, from a small webinar to a massive, a huge half day thing that we did just recently with the Data World Summit. So it really depends on the team that you have um, and making sure that you're not going to bite off more than you can chew. Um, and I would recommend starting small, tr getting familiar with both the platforms that you're going to use, the webinar tools, but also just kind of the motions about how you're going to promote it. And once you can do that effectively, start to scale up into bigger, bigger events, with maybe multiple sessions, multiple speakers, expanding, you know, the ge geographic footprint that you're targeting and things like that. So Ian, most of your career has been spent, it seems like in the B2B space. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that you try to draw inspiration from B2C or just consumer based products in general, uh, like media organizations, um, when you're doing B2B marketing. Um, but I'm curious, if you were to work in B2C, would you think your approach would be different in general or would it be pretty close to what you're doing now? Hmm. That's a really great question. I'm going to try to give you a, a nuanced answer. Um, so I think the differences between B2B marketing and B2C marketing are, um, are really kind of breaking down in a way that's exciting. Uh, more people are doing more research on their own. Even top executives at huge companies are gathering a lot of information by themselves. And previously, before social media, before the internet, they would ask people to do it for them for the most part. Um, so it's easier to reach people directly, um, which has always been a great thing about B2C. 
I also think that the expectations that B2C buyers have, or I'm sorry, B2B buyers have, especially on the enterprise side, are kind of converging with the expectations that B2C buyers have. So, um, you know, a consumer does, whether they, they think about it like this or not, they do care about the experience of using the product. Um, and if you look at like the branding of, of tools, um, like uh, what's the, the cap tables product, I think Carta, you know, it's an enterprise financial product, but the, the branding is really light and airy and fun. And it makes something that seems a little boring, honestly, pretty exciting to use from both the, the employer side and also the employee side. And I think that's becoming the norm. Um, you know, if I, if I tell you to imagine an enterprise website, enterprise is not a word, but you know what I mean, right? Like you, it's like stock photos of people in ties, just like completely unoriginal, uninspiring stuff. And I just don't think that cuts it anymore. anymore. So converging with the, the look and feel and the focus on user experience that has always been a harm, hallmark of the best uh, consumer brands, I think is, is a really smart way to go. And, um, and I'm excited to see that shift even further in that direction. Um, people just, you know, they don't, there's less separation for better or for worse between your kind of day job self and your after hours self. And so for example, you know, only using LinkedIn ads um, versus using uh, kind of surround sound advertising that that targets people wherever they are, um, you'd have to use them in different ways. But I think the latter is acknowledging that people are, um, they don't just wear one hat and you shouldn't, as a, as a business brand targeting other businesses, uh, try to access them just through you know one channel um, with one message. That's really insightful. Thank you. I wonder how different that is um, in you know a more traditional enterprise um, industry such as like commercial real estate uh, versus uh, something like you know a SaaS product. And I, I don't know if there's an answer to that question right now, but I I'd, I would imagine that the SaaS SaaS uh, world would lead the forefront there, and you know the the laggard industries would follow. Yeah, and I think that's just a function of, uh, by its very nature, SaaS is easier to experiment and change and and shake things up. Um, you can iterate. You know, we had like a thousand releases last year, a thousand, not just quarterly releases. So from your product to your marketing, you can try different things all the time and see what sticks, and you can evolve very quickly. Where if you're a traditional business, um, software or not, where it's just slower to change, it's actually a safer bet to be a little more conservative in your in your branding, in your tried and true, track, tried and true tactics, um, and you're going to take less, less risks, and that's incorporated into your business model. What is the manifesto for data practices? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, something I'm really proud of, the manifesto for data practices started as a group of data people from different disciplines, academia, business, science, that got together in San Francisco um, for a meeting to basically figure out uh, what do we believe, what principles do we believe create more effective, more inclusive, fairer data cultures. And um, I actually was on paternity leave at the time, so I wasn't there in person, but um, I fed into it and got a lot of great uh, feedback uh, from the event. 
And then I worked with uh, 40 or so co-authors to finalize uh, what those principles and values were. Uh, then we extended that. Um, we weren't just getting signatures at that point. Uh, actually, it grew faster than the Agile Manifesto grew in its first uh, two years. We got that many signatures in its first year, and it's still growing to this day. But the focus then shifted to helping people live those principles and live those values as businesses, as individual contributors, um, because it's not enough to just say, this is how things should be. We wanted to give people a game plan. So uh, we developed some uh, a curriculum of a few different modules that help people live those practices for data productivity and fairness. Um, and it got to the point where, uh, you know, it was, it, kind of blew us away with the reception it got. We we delivered talks at South by, I think, twice at, at different private companies invited us to speak to their employees. And the momentum was really building. And uh, we talked to the Linux Foundation about taking over the reins. Uh, and they're, it was great because they're a very kind of fair arbiter um, and owner of that effort now. So um, yeah, it, it kind of grew so big that it didn't make sense for us to to, to keep the lid on it. So we were happy to transfer it to uh, an esteemed organization that's, you know, in, in our space with Linux. And um, to, they, you know, they manage it to this day. And you can find it at datapractices.org. And you can sign it to this day as well. What's an example of, of one of the principles in that manifesto? Yeah, one of my favorites is impact. And that's really just the idea that, like any other area of business, especially in technology, you should prioritize projects that you think will be productive once completed and where you can learn a lot along the way. And a big part of that is asking questions in a productive way, asking clear questions, making sure all the stakeholders can kind of feed into um, the thinking behind that question, share their subject matter expertise, um, and that they, they have a good expectation about what the answer that they're gonna get in return will look like because in really any realm, I'm sure you've encountered this too, um, where someone asks a question, someone thinks they know what the question means to that person, they go and they do a lot of work and they come back and it's not the kind of answer that that person's looking for. Sometimes it goes back to like we talked about earlier with definitions, competing definitions of the same term like sales or product. Um, but often it's just that people don't invest the time upfront to make sure that they're asking clear questions and understanding the the why behind the question, because sometimes it's not even the right question to ask. And you can guide someone kind of just like in product management to a better solution, even if it was unexpected. Ian, it's been great speaking with you, man. I really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you so much for, for making this happen with me. Um, anything else you want to say to anybody who's listening, anywhere they can find you, anywhere... Um you any events you're promoting anything like that sure yeah um always happy to meet new people on on twitter i'm at be3d uh which sometimes i don't even remember what that stands for um accepting guesses if you want to tweet at me what you think my handle means be3d um also my website iangreenlee.com green is greenly spelled green like the color followed by l-e-i-g-h awesome well thanks thanks again and uh, really appreciated talking to you you too. It was my pleasure. Thank you.